Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning. My name is Angela Saylor, and I am the vice president of the Heritage Foundation's newest institute, the Edwin J. Fulner Institute. Our mission is to advance research and scholarship that reaffirms and illuminates compelling messages about the founding principles of our great nation and to add and multiply our reach to civil society by promoting and safeguarding the sanctity of the American idea and exhibiting its validity and relevance to all Americans especially those who have lost confidence that our nation is the best place of hope, opportunity, and community for all Americans. On behalf of our President Kay Coles-James, welcome to the Perils of Revisionist History webinar. It is a part two in a series that we're running on America's History of Hope, and it's featuring Dr. Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a nation against America, and Dr. Alan Gelzo, who is an acclaimed scholar of American history, including Lincoln and the Civil War. A few housekeeping notes before we get started. This session will be recorded and accessible within 48 hours after the webinar. And we're gonna ask you to also, as we are- to please submit your questions in the Q&A box in the webinar dashboard. So again, we are so delighted to have you. You know, every decade or so, a new revisionist craze will capture some small and perpetually loud sector of American historians. It happened most memorably in the 60s and 70s as the rise of Marxist professors swept through our universities. Slowly but surely, the impact was seen for what it was. Bad, bad history based on bad, bad motives. Among them, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States swept our schools in terms of alternative textbooks that were used um, being published in the beginning in the 80s. But today, it's the New York Times 1619 Project. After the New York Times launched the 1619 Project, Heritage began to produce the necessary research, data, and analysis to combat the creep of revisionist history. The research, data, and analysis illustrates the need for us as a nation to collaborate so that we can ensure that we bolster the American founding and debunk this information that is so untrue. In partnership with our Education Policy Center, the Fulner Institute included several questions on a recent survey entitled Culture of American K-12 Education. Let me tell you what we found. The survey revealed parents of children in K-12 grades are generally satisfied with the amount of civics instructions given in schools. This is consistent overall and across demographic groups. But when it comes to the 1619 narrative, some different, differing opinions exist, and this seems to reflect the conflict we're having in our nation. Parents are equally divided on whether slavery ought to be the focus of American history and our narrative. Parents are equally divided on whether they think our founders misled later generations about liberty and equality. And, however, I'd rather say, most still hold, and this is good news, that 1776 is the year of the birth of our nation. But 18 to 29-year-olds and African-Americans would prefer that that year be called 1619 and serve as the marker of our founding. Did you know that truth is increasingly regarded as something felt or relative rather than something known or absolute? 
Well, Varner studies have told us this is true. And they've also pointed out that a person's worldview is primarily shaped uh, by the time they are the age 13. Revisionists have claimed that America's past is nothing more than a history of oppression, slavery, and exploitation. This is why we say this is an assault on America. And so joining us today, and I invite them to the screen, are Dr. Mary Graybar and Dr. Alan Gelson. Dr. Mary Graybar is the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. She is also a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization in Clinton, New York. And she is currently working on a book debunking the 1619 Project. Dr. Graybar's distinguished career includes a series of positions as an instructor. And the last in the program, um, she, prior to joining the Hamilton Institute, uh, she was at American Democracy and Citizenship at Emory University. So what I'd like to do at this point is to welcome her to the screen and to turn the mic over. Dr. Graber, uh, the floor is yours. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about revisionist history. Sometimes it's a good thing. Uh, for example, one of the historians that I include in my book, Debunking Howard Zinn, to refute uh, Zinn's claims on the Vietnam War is a historian by the name of Mark Moyar. He uh, wrote a revisionist history. He's considered to be a revisionist history because he uncovered new evidence about the Vietnam War and he upset the traditional narrative that had been written by historians who were largely opposed to the war and saw it as an unjust war. Uh, so he included this new evidence and his book argues that we were winning the war. That's opposed to the predominant view of the historians who thought the war was unwinnable. Howard Zinn pretended to do the same thing. And I emphasize he pretended to do that in his book, A People's History of the United States, which was first published in 1980. He claimed to be revealing new evidence in everything from Christopher Columbus's diary to a Harper's Magazine article about Japanese internment camps published at the end of World War II to the Pentagon Papers. But what I discovered in going through Zinn's book is that he did no such thing. In terms of Columbus, he mostly copied from passages quoted in a book. He plagiarized a book for high school students written by a fellow Marxist and anti-Vietnam War organizer who was not a historian, but a novelist by the name of Hans Koning. The passages from Columbus's diary are quoted deceptively. Ellipses indicate not omission of a sentence or two, but pages and leave out key sentences that would reveal that Columbus sought to convert the Indians by love, not force, and certainly was not intent on murder or genocide, as Zinn claims. The article in Harper's Magazine in September 1945 that presumably finally revealed to the, quote, general public long hidden Japanese internment camps was preceded by one actually in September 1942 in the very same magazine. That article described one camp in detail and showed it to be far from displaying prison conditions in a direct duplication of fascism as Zinn maintained. This is not to mention daily articles and newspapers and a video that was uh, produced by the War Department and shown in movie theaters. The top secret government documents about Indochina uh, were also quoted deceptively. For example, references to fears about communist imperialism were cut off at the ends of sentences by Zinn in order to make it appear that American leaders were motivated 
by imperialistic greed. And these are just a few of the examples of deliberate deception in Howard Sims' book. Yet, Zinn writes with, quote, moral authority, as one historian has noted. He does this by presenting himself as the revealer of truth, the champion of the oppressed, who finally tells their story. The historians who came before him were the deceivers, he says. Samuel Eliot Morrison, for example, is accused of, quote, burying the story of genocide by Christopher Columbus inside a more important story of progress. Zinn enhances the outrage by going into a rant, questioning the need for, quote, bloodshed and deceit, and asking, do we have the right to throw into the pyre the children of others or even our own children for a progress which is not nearly as clear or present as sickness or health, life or death? Zinn also attacks of the historian Bernard Balin, claiming that he perpetuates, quote, the mythology around the founding fathers. Zinn quotes Balin out of context and distorts the meaning of Balin's words. In contradiction, Zinn says, the founders were not wise and just men trying to achieve a good balance. In fact, according to Zinn, it is a pretense to believe that, quote, there really is such a thing as the United States or a national interest. So for Zinn, communism is the solution. Zinn acknowledges that Stalin was an authoritarian, but points to the day when the right people will implement communism. In fact, many times, local communist governments in Europe, Central America, and Vietnam have attempted to do so, only to be quashed by the American military, according to Zinn. In fact, we did not defeat fascism during World War II, but had its, quote, essential elements, militarism, racism, imperialism, absorbed into our already poisoned bones, end of quote. In other words, we were no better than the Nazis. This is Howard Zinn's narrative in A People's History of the United States. It is fraudulent history, one that uses bad sources such as a book by a Holocaust denier, anonymous diaries, works of fiction, and mythical speeches. He plagiarizes and quotes deceptively the inequality, oppression, police brutality, racism, sexism, and injustice are presented as the inevitable outcomes of the system or the establishment. In other words, they are baked into the founding and the Constitution. No reform is possible as long as we keep our constitutional form of government, according to Zinn. The word system or systemic appears 168 times in the book. There's systemic racism, systemic inequality, the struggle, a favorite word of communists, against the system is ongoing and will end only when the uh, system is overthrown. Struggle is a favorite word of communists and it appears in that 89 times in Zinn's book. Zinn attempts to preempt all questioning of his method and facts by deceptively making an analogy between the historian and a map maker, describing them both as choosing among a variety of paths and facts. He writes, there is no such thing as pure fact, innocent of interpretation. Behind all facts are judgments that this fact is important and that other facts omitted are not important. He pretends to choose the facts about the oppressed that have been long overlooked by other historians. Thus, he has been touted as writing a bottom-up history. But as I show, in debunking Howard Zinn, the workers, the slaves, descendants of slaves, women, Indians, etc., that he presents are either anonymous mouthpieces spouting communist slogans, dupes, or famous Marxist radicals. So Zinn presents himself as a crusading historian uncovering the history of these oppressed groups and exposing other histories as apologists for American imperialism. 
So the reader is left with the feeling that he has read the only history book he needs to read. He is whipped up emotionally and he charges forward righteously and blindly to engage in what has become, thanks also to Zen, a sanctified activity, protest. In Zen's history, the only glimmer of hope comes from mass protest and the more violent, the better. Martyrs are heroes. Riots define the civil rights movement. He writes excitedly. In the early 1960s, black people rose in rebellion all over the South. And in the late 1960s, they were engaging in wild insurrection in a hundred northern cities, end of quote. Slavery for Zinn did not end with the Civil War. Zinn writes, there is not a country in world history in which racism has been more important for so long a time as the United States, end of quote. But for Zinn, legal problems, will, legal rights will not solve the problem. According to Zinn, voting is not a solution to racism or poverty. The entire system is rotten. It needs to be torn down. And so in conclusion, that is what is being done this summer in Portland, Minneapolis, Kenosha, and other cities across the country. Young people of all races, educational levels, and economic classes are in the streets. They began with statues and monuments. They have moved on to businesses and government buildings. They are people in public who refuse to join them. Zinn has been the inspiration for Vietnam War protesters, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and Antifa. For those who believe Zinn's history, revolution is the only solution. Zinn died in 2010, but the violence in the streets today would have made him very happy. Oh my goodness, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Graybar. Wow, what a wealth of information. Um, I'll tell you, as I was listening to your, your, your remarks and as you walked us through all of that, I was reminded of the quote by President Lincoln when, when he said, if you once forfeit the confidence of your fellow citizens, you can never regain their respect and esteem. And you may fool all of the people some of the time, and you can even fool some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. This is a great segue uh, to Dr. Alan Gelzo, who is an acclaimed scholar of American history, whose writings have been recognized among the most important contributions to scholarly and public understanding of the 19th century America. His book, Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, received the 2000 Lincoln Prize, as well as the 2000 Book Prize of the Abraham Institute of the Mid-Atlantic. His Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, The End of Slavery in America Emancipation, and his Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, also received the Lincoln Prize in 2005 and in 2013, respect respectively. In addition to his great scholarship, he serves as a senior research scholar in the Council of Humanities at Princeton University and director of the James Madison Programs Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship. And we are so proud to have him as a visiting scholar for the Fulner Institute and our Simon Center for American Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Gelzo, welcome. Hello, everyone. The first question, of course, is what is the 1619 Project? We're not talking about a scientific research endeavor like the Manhattan Project. The 1619 Project is a journalistic initiative contained in a 100-page issue of the New York Times Magazine under the general direction of Nicole Hannah-Jones. This appeared in August of 2019, just a year ago, and it collected articles, poetry, and fiction, all of which were designed to recenter American history around the experience of slavery. Now, that may not sound all that exciting if what you want from a newspaper is some headlines, the sports results, or financial updates. But the 1619 Project has a real revolutionary punch all the same. 
since the 1619 Project is conceived as a national initiative to recenter. And by that term, we mean to disrupt and confuse so that attention migrates to a new core. No, the purpose of the 1619 Project is to recenter the teaching of American history to students in K through 12 classrooms across the country so that American history is understood solely through the lens of race. And by race, what is meant is racial oppression. In other words, all of American history should now be taught as a story about African Americans as the dominant narrative, focusing on their lives as the new center and highlighting their struggle against oppression by white people as the animating force of that narrative. This recentering is evident in the very title of the project, since Hannah Jones believes that 1619 and not 1776 represents the real founding of America. The year 1619, of course, is the year when African slaves were first introduced to colonial Virginia. It is from that moment that the real American history begins, because every development in American history since 1619 has either rested on the exploitation of black slaves and their descendants today, or follows a pattern of anti-black hostility. That's it. No Plymouth Rock, no Alexander Graham Bell, no Hoover Dam, no Apollo 11. No aspect that followed, wrote Hannah Jones in her lead essay, no aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery. Out of slavery and the anti-black racism it required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, its diet and popular music, the inequities of its public health and education, its astonishing penchant for violence, its income inequality, the example it sets for the world as a land of freedom and equality, its slang, its legal system, and the endemic racial fears and hatreds that continue to plague it to this day. So says Nicole Hannah-Jones in the lead essay of the 1619 Project. It will be easy thanks to Mary Graybar's work on Howard Zinn, to understand the seedbed out of which the 1619 Project has grown. For Howard Zinn, the history of the United States was also a history of exploitation and oppression from Christopher Columbus onward. But Zinn followed a classic Marxist notion of history and confined his reworking of American history to questions predominantly of class. Race was tangential to Zinn's interests and was only important as an adjunct to the class struggle. The 1619 Project also represents the influence of critical theory, which has taken this concept of struggle and transferred the narrative to race, gender, and language. This is why, incidentally, most classical Marxists have balked at endorsing the 1619 Project. The struggle of classes has disappeared almost entirely from it. Critical theory understands people as members of identity groups, not as a part of an economic class, and dismisses any significance for individuals. Rather than dwelling on literal examples of class warfare, Critical theory looks instead to find oppression in the form of language. Appeals to historical facts are considered passé. Facts are merely aspects of discourse, which one group in power uses to oppress those not in power. Even oppression itself ceases to become a literal case of physical violence applied to physical bodies because oppression is any divergence from an identity group's self-constructed narrative. In that sense, the 1619 Project is Howard Zinn, but raised to new heights by critical theory. This is not merely historical revisionism. In some senses, historical revisionism occurs every time a historian sits down to write a new book. 
since each historian brings a new perspective to past events seen through their own eyes. What the 1619 Project proposes, however, makes the word revisionist fail on the lips because it is based on an entirely different way of thinking, based on critical theory and impervious to disproof in something of the same way that Lewis Carroll took Alice into an unhinged and unpredictable world through the looking glass. But it should also be said that the 1619 Project is not an academic endeavor, and that may be a blessing in disguise, since in academic contexts, critical theory is often so dense and rebarbative as to defeat its own purposes. The 1619 Project is, after all, a journalistic product, and for all that it owes to critical theory, it frequently and inadvertently ventures out into historical territory where facts wait to ambush its fallacies. Some examples of this abound. First of all, begin with the date, 1619. Actually, the first African slaves to be deposited on the shores of North America arrived not in 1619, but in the 1520s as part of an unsuccessful colonizing venture of the Spanish on the Georgia coast. Or second, in the 1619 Project's lead essay, Hannah Jones asserts that one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. So the American Revolution, according to this thinking, was fought not for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or because all men are created equal, but in order to keep British overlords from meddling with American slavery. But as a number of prominent historians of early America have replied in astonishment, there is no evidence that protecting slavery played any role in any American's decision to support the revolution. So far was this from the minds of American revolutionaries that one historian whom Hannah Jones did consult, uh, Leslie M. Harris of Northwestern University, advised Hannah Jones not to make this assertion. And when Hannah Jones ignored this advice, Harris, in March of 2020, went public with her complaint in Politico. And the New York Times Magazine was forced to concede the error in a humiliating update that it issued on March 11th. Or a third example. In the 1619 Project's second essay by Matthew Desmond, we're told that American capitalism developed out of the methods and tools developed by slave owners, and that slavery was so profitable that New Orleans boasted a denser concentration of banking capital than New York City. Well, if you look at the economic numbers recorded at that time in the newspapers, almanacs, and government statements, New York alone possessed more banks in 1858 than the entire future Confederacy, while Southern banking capital in 1858 amounted to less than 80% of that held by those same New York banks alone. Slave-grown cotton was, indeed, as Desmond's essay says, the single biggest export commodity of pre-Civil War America, but only in terms of the percentage of the product which was exported. New York, in 1856 to 57, overshadowed every other state in the Union in the value of exports of produce and accounted for almost twice as much as all the slave states combined, except for Louisiana. And that was because New Orleans was the export depot for all of the commerce of the Ohio, Missouri, and Mississippi River Valleys, which included a number of the free states of the Old Northwest. Or fourthly, as an example of facts waiting to ambush what's going on in many other places, um, take Jamel Bowie's claim in his essay that John Calhoun, the preeminent apologist for slavery and the architect of Southern secession, was the ideological forerunner of the modern Republican Party. What Bowie disregards is that Calhoun was a Democrat, that slavery was defended 
by Democrats, and that Calhoun's calls to rewrite the Constitution to create proportional representation of the sections and to justify nullification of federal law are arguments heard today from Democratic lips and in the streets of Democratic cities. Refuting facts, however, does not do damage, or at least not as much damage, to the 1619 Project as we might imagine. Because it is, after all, remember, not history. The 1619 Project, from its debt to critical theory, is a language narrative. It is a discourse, not a story. Or maybe, perhaps, it is simply a fairy tale. Back to you, Angela. Dr. Gelza, yes, I agree, a fairy tale. Well, um, what we want to do is, is, is want to talk a little bit about the demonstrations that, that are spreading nationwide this week uh, after the shooting of, of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. Civil rights leaders prepare to host tens of thousands of people in a march on Washington today. And political motives are in conflict with people who are looking for solutions. So as we begin to get ready for a discussion with uh, Dr. Graybar and Dr. Gelzo, take a look at the screen. Many see the slogan Black Lives Matter or BLM as a noble plea for equal treatment under the law. It's a cry to secure the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. But what does the Black Lives Matter organization actually stand for? To find out, look no further than their leaders, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Cullors. Here's Cullors in a revealing 2015 interview. They actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Visit the Black Lives Matter website and read the list of demands to get a sense of how deep a transformation they seek. One of those demands proclaims, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another. We can't be certain, but it's hard to believe this radical agenda is what most signed up for when they made that hashtag Black Lives Matter social media post, or that every employee, customer, or shareholder at Nike endorses a disruption of the family. Garza first coined the phrase in 2013, the day George Zimmerman was acquitted of murdering Trayvon Martin. Her friend Colors added the hashtag and joined the words so it could travel through social media. To Medi, created the digital platform BlackLivesMatter.com. According to Robert Stilson of the Capital Research Center, the group became a self-styled global network in 2014 and a fiscally sponsored project of a separate progressive nonprofit in 2016. This evolution has helped embolden an agenda vastly more ambitious than a national defunding of police. The goals of the Black Lives Matter organization go far beyond what most people think. They're hiding in plain sight, there for the world to see. If only we read beyond the slogans and the summaries of the movement they helped to create. It's a distinction with a profound difference. Their radical Marxist agenda is bent on supplanting the basic building blocks of society, the family, replacing it with the state, and destroying the economic system that has lifted more people from poverty than any other. Theirs is a blueprint for misery, not justice. It must be rejected. Dr. Gelzo back and Dr. Graybar back to the screen. We've got a lot to unpack here. Um, you know, we, we are repeatedly falling prey to partisan ping pong. 
uh, the validity of basic facts and, and even the method of defining them is subject to constant ideological trickery and deception. Um, and so wanna talk about kind of the, the impact of, of Howard's Inn and the teaching over, over these oh so many years and the, the, the arrival of 1619 right into this moment of tension in the country. Um, and wanna I just, let's just peel back the onion on, on all of this to talk about how we're gonna navigate this world where um, so many in society don't know what to believe and, and are really being manipulated. Uh, Dr. Graybar, over to you. Yeah, I see a direct connection to the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, in a people's history of the United States, Zen is constantly slamming uh, the police. He says our, uh, our prisoners are all political prisoners. Um, at the Zen Education Project, which is a 501c3 organization uh, that sends out materials to over 100,000 teachers that have signed up, uh, there are lessons for Black Lives Matter. Uh, there's a Black Lives Matter week in schools, and they send out the free curriculum for that. Uh, so they promote Black Lives Matter. If you look at their website, uh, the news updates are about the police shootings. They're, they're keeping up the agitation. They're very supportive of these protests. They tell teachers how to get their students out into the streets to protest. And so when you've got this narrative that all police are racist uh, and, uh, you know, oppressors and that our criminal justice system is corrupt, you have encouragement for what we're seeing on the streets today. And plus you have Zen who, uh, you know, if you read his book, and after after it you come away if you believe it that is and you're a teenager which is the typical reader you come away uh thinking wow the only way i can uh you know right these injustices in this country is to take to the streets and that's what you've got you've got uh generations of young people raised on this propaganda this communist disinformation Great point. Great point. Dr. Gelsel, I want to get you in on the conversation. You know, the Massachusetts Association of School Committees decided to um, um, require support of a resolution against racism in, in, in the midst of, of all that's going on around the country. And we see this happening across the nation in terms of, of the response. And we're also, as, as we look at 1619, um, and it's, it's starting to grow some across the country in terms of an option, there are other options that are being put out there as well. And we've got kind of a, a, a perfect environment to really try to have an impact and make a difference and slow some of this down with parents finding themselves homeschooling and looking at other ways to deal with um, educating their children during COVID as, as we try to keep the children safe. So can you just, you know, give us your perspective here on, you know, what do we need to be doing um, to combat this from an ideological standpoint where you've got the images that are coming across the television screen and on the devices and all across those social media and where you've got children, kids, Generation Z, where they where they don't really believe their truth is like some kind of different truth. I don't I don't really know what we call it, but but what do we do? Give us some wisdom here. Well I hope it's wisdom. It's difficult to combat social media because social media functions on sound bites. It functions on 140 characters. And that means it is swift, superficial, and shallow. It's also in it accumulates in large amounts large numbers of very small pieces of information or attempts at simulation of information so trying to deal with this in terms of its social media presence is probably a null set because you cannot reason now, social media is not structured 
to accommodate logic and reason. Uh, social media is, a, in some respects, it is a bullhorn. And you might as well try to sing a Verdi uh, uh, operatic aria through a bullhorn as try to use it for reason. And I, th and I think that social media functions very much like that. What can people do in practical terms, though, when they find materials like the 1619 Project or Zinn's People's History or materials connected to either the 1619 Project or the People's History? What, what can people do? Well, first of all, education in this country is a remarkably decentralized affair. Um, that varies from state to state, but Overall, it's very decentralized. We have a national Department of Education, but the actual work that the Department of Education does does not, in fact, go down very deeply. Uh, what Where education policy is determined is much more frequently on the local level, especially where I live here on the East Coast. I mean, the older, so to speak, the older the parts of the country, like the East Coast, the more decentralized it is. That means that it's local school boards. It's local uh, teacher groups or chapters of uh, teacher unions. Uh, it is schools and principals and administrators themselves on the ground who make these kinds of decisions. They are much more approachable and much more amenable to a discussion than if we were dealing with some great centralized behemoth. So one of the virtues of American education, it's decentralization, works in our favor. Do not hesitate to go to school board meetings. I know that takes time, but this is worth the time. Go to PTA meetings. Again, that requires the time. This is worth the time. Arrange to meet with teachers. Offer to have meetings with school principals where you can lay out a number of the difficulties and outright inaccuracies that have been outlined by Mary in her book and that I have discussed so briefly about the 1619 Project. But take it in your own hands because it actually is in your own hands because of the decentralization of American education. Now, that's one half of the story. The other half of the story is what can you do at home? One major thing you can do at home is to make sure that what your children are reading is pushing them and pointing them in the right directions. I think uh, to give you an example of, uh, of this, which would be extremely helpful, uh, I would point people who have high schoolers, especially we're talking 11th grade, 12th grade, I would point them to Wilfred McClay's uh, Land of Hope, uh, An Invitation to the Great American Story. It's a wonderful survey of American history. And it is, as, as McClay says, it is about a country which is a land of hope. There are a number of other educational resources at various grade levels below that, many of them easily accessible on the web. Sometimes we don't think to go to the web looking for educational resources, but they're there. Above all, forget the idea that you are not a professional educator. Everybody is an educator. You know, whether you have a string of initials after your name or not, everybody is an educator. My start in history education, it literally, it began at my grandmother's knee. And that kind of uh, hands-on, uh, ha uh, I mean, what is tradition except literally handing on, traditio? That kind of handing on of a tradition of understanding history is something which can be and should be done by all of us. So be creative, reach out, take the opportunities, and above all, take the time. I know that time is at a premium for us, but nevertheless, what are we talking about? We're talking about an investment of time in the next generation, in our children and our grandchildren. That is worth it. So there's all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, do it on the ground, do it one by one, and take advantage of the decentralization of our educational systems. Those are those are some amazing points, um, especially looking at at our children and students K through 12. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, in the academy. I mean, both of you uh, have great engagement with the academy, and so as they graduate from high school and and now go to college and they're in the university setting, 
and these issues are will still percolate and meet them at the door. Um, and we've got, you know, this the tension too with um, scholarship of of the um, academic um, scholars who have to balance um, these viewpoints on college campuses around free speech. So, uh, Dr. Graybar, what are some of your thoughts as as we are then talking about those who graduate from high school and they're getting closer to the real world as, as they are developing and being trained to be the next generation of leaders. How do we how do we talk to those college students? I have been um, sort of uh, exiled from academia. I was a part-time instructor and my dissertation was not in the politically correct realm. I did not deal with uh, critical theory as Dr. Walzo talked about, and a lot of the stuff we're seeing came from English departments where my PhD is. And I uh, was teaching part-time, and when my contract was about to be renewed a couple times, the department chairs, and in one case, the president of the college found out about some op-eds I wrote about the corruption of uh, education, uh, which I had been privy to more than most people back then over 10 years ago. So I think, uh, you know, that there is a need to some way have more diversity and intellectual diversity on our college campuses. I mean, the cancel culture that I got, which was simply, oh, sorry, though we were begging you to take more classes last semester, we suddenly don't have any more for you. The cancel culture has become so vicious now that anything you say, even on social media or in a classroom, uh, is grounds for immediate termination, even if you have tenure. So I think the whole system needs to be, um, you know, reformed uh, to allow a diversity of intellectual opinions. And, uh, you know, here at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, we offer that kind of diversity uh, in academic uh, scholarship to students. And so we have interns, we have lectures here, and we have conferences. So I think uh, institutes like this one, and there are a number of them across the country, need to be supported. And we have, you know, many students who are very thankful um, to have us because they are actually intimidated on campus. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing um, even a part of your personal story there. I think it, it really helps to drive home um, the, the, the real human dynamic of, of, of what's happening with the tension. And we thank, we thank the participants for logging questions in. And there's, there's a, a constant question uh, about um, AP classes and, and how parents equip their children to go into these classes. Um, they, they want them to be able to, you know, have the status of, of being an AP scholar. I mean, they've got to compete um, in, in order to go to college. And, and that's one of those um, acknowledgements that and accolades that, that helps them along. And so we are running out of time. So what I'd like to do is, as we do your closing statement, uh, if you would, again, punch hard for the, the oh so many questions we've gotten again in terms of parents just, they, I, people are looking for ways to fight back. And I want to offer that there are organizations like the Heritage Foundation where you can send your children to our online academy or for, for internships as we get back to a place where we can welcome students into our building. But these are the kind of programs that help to create some balance in their lives along with all the wonderful work that parents do at home. So as we close out, um, I'm gonna go to you, Dr. Graybar first, and then we'll close out final comments from you, uh, Dr. Gelzo, before we again thank our participants for joining us today. Dr. Graybar. The reason I wrote Debunking Howard's In is to offer a tool to students 
who might be assigned Howard Zinn's book and say, wait, this just doesn't sound right. And I have footnoted evidence. I've done original research at the archives. And so this, I hope, can be used as a tool for rebuttal in class. Uh, and if anyone wants to dispute my sources, they can do that. I have not had anyone on the left want to engage in a real conversation about that. And so I think um, also what we need to do, one of my frustrations uh, as an instructor was that I felt that I wasn't really being heard. So 15 years ago, we weren't having, you know, Noam Chomsky signing a letter against cancel culture. He just didn't care because he was in charge. And I really do uh, admire Tom, uh, Senator Tom Cotton for his bill. I think this needs to get out into the public and there needs to be more oversight of what is actually taught in classrooms. The Zen Education Project and other similar organizations are overtly political if you go to them. And I think there should be a movement made that just as we would not use textbooks in the classroom that are written by Holocaust deniers or people who denied that uh, there were horrible aspects of slavery, we would not use those inaccurate books. So should we not use Howard Zinn's book? And I hope uh, my book can be used in, as a weapon in that fight. So thank you. Again, thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Gelsel. Thank you, Dr. Graybar, for all of the rich information you've shared today. And to our participants, thank you so much for um, logging in for this conversation. It doesn't stop here. And uh, we just want to remind you that that freedom, this is about freedom and it's not passed down in the bloodstream. It's something that we have to get up every day and fight for and protect. And we thank you all for doing that day in and day out. Again, you will receive an email with additional resources and please look out for additional webinars uh, that we will be hosting. And again, thank you on behalf of our president, Kay Coles-James, for tuning in today.